to The CropCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. In today's episode, Croc Institute Associate Professor of the Practice of Conflict Transformation and Peacebuilding, David Anderson Hooker, talks with Catholic Peacebuilding Network partners Jean-Baptiste Talla, Nell Bolton, and Father Rigobert Mignani about the current coronavirus pandemic and its impact on peacebuilding in sub-Saharan Africa. The pandemic and peacebuilding, lessons from sub-Saharan Africa. Hello, welcome to this episode of the CrocCast. My name is David Anderson Hooker. I'm an associate professor of the practice of conflict transformation and peace building at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies, which is an integral unit of the Keough School of Global Affairs. This conversation has been organized by a Catholic Peace Building Network, whose secretariat is hosted at the Kroc Institute. This episode will be part of a series examining the mutual impacts between the COVID-19 pandemic and peace building. I'd like to start by introducing our very special guest for the day. First, Jean-Baptiste Tala, who is a technical advisor for peace building at Catholic Relief Services. He focuses on Western and Central Africa and has recently been very involved with peace building work in the Central African Republic, Togo, the Gambia, and the Sahel in particular. Welcome, Jean-Baptiste. Thanks, good morning. Yeah. Next, we have Nell Bolton. Nell's a senior technical advisor for justice and peace building with Catholic Relief Services and is a graduate of the Kroc Institute. Her recent work with CRS has focused largely on social cohesion and strengthening interfaith partnerships between communities. Nell, thank you very much for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Also with us this morning, Rigobert Manani. Manani is from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's worked for 10 years as the head of research for Peace, Human Rights, Democracy, and Good Governance Department at Centre Etudes pour l'Action Sociale in the DRC. Currently, he is the team leader for Ecclesial Network in the Congo Basin Forest and director of Jesuit Social Ministry in the DRC and Angola. Rigobert, thank you very much for spending some time with us this morning. Thank you. I wanted to start, I'm going to ask each of you one question just to get us in, and then hopefully that will create kind of our juices flowing, and it's going to just keep the conversation going from there. So let me start, Jean-Baptiste, with you. How do you imagine that community-based or person-to-person peace building is going to be impacted in or affected by the presence of the pandemic? Thank you for the question. You know, it's not going, it's already been affected. You know, with the pandemic, they are called to social distance. They are called not to have in contact person. Why normally working for peace, people should be coming together. And you know, most of the time in Africa, as maybe as other place, the causes of the crisis or the escalation of conflict to violence is most of the time based on resources. And now the resources are becoming more rare in Africa. 
And you see in that case, competition is going also to be increased. And this can lead also to increase, not just the pandemic, but also situation where we can find people fighting. I was going to say also in terms of how we are going to approach it. Normally, this brings us to think through and think in this pandemic, what can we do to continue doing? And maybe this is the positive things because this brings us to be more creative now to think how to continue, not just talking about the distance between people, but helping people to build connection. And I can share with you what we at CRS now as a team we are trying to do. Most of the time, our workshop for peace building was done in person. Now we have started thinking about having virtual workshop, peace building workshop. For instance, now we are in the process with the Togo programs to see how the network we had on the ground for social cohesion could be also enforced. We could, we could strengthen the capacity so that they can also contribute in fighting the virus. And we had a, a workshop that is going on every year in Africa. We call it the IPA Institute for Peace in Africa. And it's normally an in-person, but we have to change now. And we are thinking of a strategy to hold this online. So these are the new things that is going to take us. And most of the meeting we are having, most of the thing we are trying to do is really to continue working online and keep relationship with our partners who are in the ground at the community levels and try to go beyond social distance and see how even being alone, you can continue to keep contact with others. Mm -hmm. So that's very helpful. Nell, I imagine you probably would want to also comment on the social cohesion question, but I'm wondering if you would also talk about conflict sensitivity and where that is seen, the importance, the significance, and how that's being expressed right now in some of the humanitarian relief, peace-building practices that you're aware of. Sure. Thank you for that question. We know from our past experience with other epidemics and disease outbreaks that social networks and the social fabric can break down very quickly in the presence of fear and uncertainty, especially in this time when there's physical distancing. And so one of the reasons why conflict sensitivity is so important is that that lens can bring extra attention to how we can keep social networks strong, how we can continue as we're going about informing people of how they can keep themselves safe, as we're going about providing essential services, how we can also take that as an opportunity to strengthen solidarity, to reinforce the notion that everyone is in this together, to reinforce social trust. And we can also see that social trust is a really important ingredient in people's ability to buy in to what we collectively need to do as societies to protect everyone, especially the most vulnerable from the impacts of the virus. And so the other way in which conflict sensitivity becomes really important is that pre-existing divisions, inequities, imbalances of power don't go away in the presence of the pandemic. And there's a real risk that the ways in which access to services and resources plays out will just reinforce those Risks. So it's really important for us to have an understanding of what are the, the existing conflict lines, what kinds of relationships could be worsened 
in this time and even in in and through relief efforts and try to make sure that we're first of all focusing on those who are most vulnerable, most likely to be excluded from other services, but also that we're thinking carefully about how we can sort of bring people together, even if it's somewhat more virtually in the way that Jean-Baptiste was talking about in this time. And we have some, some of our partners are working on ways that they can reinforce these messages of solidarity and mutual trust in this time. So thinking about solidarity and mutual trust, I also wonder about the larger impacts on efforts at democracy and good governance and these kinds of things. And I'm wondering, Rigobert, what, if anything, are you all seeing in terms of the impact that the pandemic is having on the work of democracy and good governance that the Catholic Church is involved in or even other civil societies that you're aware of in, say, the DRC or elsewhere? Yeah, this pandemic has come to the very bad moment for DRC. It is just less than one year that uh, we had the change of the power. And uh, the new government that took power was trying to start building its own policy. But then this pandemic came a moment where things were not settled at all. So we've now DRC truly in a political crisis. The chief of the cabinet of the president has been put in jail. The president himself has been hidden very strongly around his family. He has lost four people for corona in around himself. The other side of Kabila are trying now to get more space politically and to influence the situations. So the church itself now, uh, the church is trying to do its best. The day before yesterday, Colonel Ambongo has been appointed to chair the commission that will address the pandemic from the point of view of mobilizing uh, funds, populations, and he is the head of a number of religious leaders and civil society organizations. But the situation is truly shaking a lot. So because people cannot move, because people cannot do any work, even communicating between different opponents becoming very difficult. So the situation is, is very, very bad, I should say. One of the things that is happening as, and this is for everybody, one of the things as governments are trying to include or enforce things like social distancing and respond to the pandemic in particular ways, there's an increased possibility and in some places a clear increased expression of authoritarianism and state violence. And I'm wondering if you all are seeing that, and what are some good examples of ways to respond to or address this increase in state-sponsored violence? Or is that even, should that really be a concern during these moments of pandemic? David, I think it's certainly a concern, and a lot of our civil society and church partners are tracking this. And it's difficult to say at this time what a response should look like because that has to be sort of figured out in each context what's possible and what's safe. But we we know that there are religious leaders and civil society leaders who are concerned about repressive measures that are being taken perhaps beyond the public good 
related to public health and that are creating risks of more violence as well as closing civil liberties. And so I know that you know, some of the discussion has been around roles for those actors to be monitoring what's happening and trying to bring a concern that any measures, any restrictive measures are appropriate, necessary, proportional to the threat of illness and time bound so that they don't become cover for longer term political agendas. And there is a role, I think, particularly for, for faith leaders to be important voices, both in encouraging people to adhere to physical distancing guidelines and other restrictions that might be in place, but also to call for adequate measures of human rights and civil liberties at the same time. And it's possible to hold those voices at the same time. Let me come in also just to say that it's really challenging. You know, at this time of crisis, there is what it will be the priority, security or fighting against the pandemic. In some places, because of the security, I think the government are becoming really autocrat, as you are saying. But at this moment, I think it's also time to continue doing some type of advocacy, using also the virtual way, using the messages, I just learned that in the case of Zimbabwe, the police were harassing the journalists who were covering the lockdown. But due to the pressure that came from civil society, the government issued a recommendation or issue, I don't know how you say it in English, but issue something to ask policemen not to harass journalists when they are doing their own job. So I think there are still things to do. You know, this makes me think about the changes are the vertical dimension of social cohesion. There is a need at this moment to continue advocating so that the government should be, how can I say, the government, people who are in power, people who take decisions, should really take into account the liberty and the way people have to live a dignified life when they are taking some decision. And the other way also, something I can add, in Africa, it's very difficult to apply the regulation as they applied in other countries. Uh, the situation are more difficult there. You know more the people in Africa live through informal way. And so when they ask for lockdown, you have a choice. Stay at home and die for hunger or go out and die for, for the virus. What to do? If really the government wants to save people, sometimes you need to use some really strong measure to bring people to stay at home. But when you use it, you limit people's liberties, you limit people's freedom. And now, how to match the two of them? I think that is also a place we can think through and see how we can continue advocating to see how we can use, I don't know how to say it in English, we can use the stick and the carrot at the same moment. So there seems to be this great complexity, and I'm wondering if we can talk through it from peace building perspectives. There's security, which is very important. There's the public health, but when economies are set up, Jean-Baptiste, as you say, with so much informal informality where hunger and other aspects of survival can't survive or can't be addressed in the state of lockdown, and then to add a layer on it where you have a lot of international organizations that are trying to respond 
but the international organizations are actually considered the sources. For some, there's the xenophobia, and so they're being described as the source of the coronavirus. I know in South Sudan and a few other places, they're saying, well, they are the ones who have brought this virus to us. And so help us just talk through the complexity of the intricacies and how strategic peace building or some other response would help us think through these complications. Yeah, maybe I can give my reflection on this. First, from the point of view of human rights, the state of emergency is something that limits the freedom of the people. So normally states, before they declare a state of emergency or lockdown, there is a number of measures that they should put in place. And most of the time, what I've seen in many countries in Africa, it's something that just came with a big brutality and that they didn't, the government didn't take possibility time to explain to people what are their duties and what are the rights of the people. So there is something very conflictual there. The second level, it is also at the level of the population. As the Jabatists have said, normally in a place where people live in hot place, people, they live outside, not inside the houses. So there is a kind of changing of behavior that has to be promoted. And no one is taking care on, on that. I leave that part, the question of economic, that is the main, main subject. So all this lockdown came in a situation where already population poor, now they don't have any living at all. They cannot go out. What I've, I've realized, at least uh, the country that I monitor, Congo and Angola, people have been killed. Police have killed people because of this, you know. The police, they will go to a group of young boys, say that we have to wear masks. And the people, they said, and yourself, you don't have masks. And then they'll be quarreling. And uh, the police, they, they will shoot. And we've lost a number of young boys just like that. So there is a kind of tension, a, a strong tension. And, and I think our organization working in peace building, they have there some, something to do to, in direction of the leaders who are just taking measures, but they don't know how to do the follow-up. In the side of the population who have to understand what is the reasons and the, the limitation of what they can do. So the question of the foreigners come as a scapegoat. When there is a tension in a society, people tend to, to find who, who is the responsible of that. They cannot touch the leaders, then they'll go after those who are foreign in the, in the, the region. That's the situation. But I don't fear a lot that it will be something that will be, it will take longer because very soon everybody will realize that their neighbors who can be f- foreigners, they don't have anything to see of the question of the, of, of the corona. And then I think, but there is there a room to, to try to, to work so that people can be, build solidarity and not fighting. Maybe to add on it, I think it's about how the information are shared. I think at the beginning, the coronavirus was presented first as the Chinese virus, then as something that could not touch Africans. So when you arrive in Africa, people think that it's the foreigner who bring it in Africa because they present it as something that is out, come from outside of Africa. I think this brings me to think about how can we fight against rumor during this time of pandemic? Because one of the key challenges people are having is where to find the right information. The right information. There are so there are many wrong information going out. And I'm thinking also maybe for civil society, maybe church, there is one way of fighting this should be to 
clarify and bring to people the right information on the situation so that they can understand that foreigners or other people are not the one who bring the illness in the country, but that is the virus which is affecting all humanity. So that is something, uh, the good information could also help us to avoid those type of behavior. I think also, you know, to also come back to the question of what could a strategic peace building approach sort of offer us, I think is also the opportunity to look at both the short-term needs to protect human security, but also start looking towards the long-term view. And certainly there are a lot of people who are looking at the long-term view in terms of health impacts, not just related to coronavirus, but other illnesses that will continue to kill many people in Africa, even more so if they can't access health services, malaria, HIV, other illnesses, but also to start looking to sort of the long-term view of our societies in the future. And so I think that with short-term measures to provide accurate information to counter scapegoating and xenophobia, there's also a chance to take a good hard look at sort of the power inequities that are revealed by the way this virus has spread and the way its impacts are being felt. So at the same time that everyone is being affected and is in this together, the inequities that exist in health services in a lot of countries, the reality that those who have the least ability to travel and move around are the ones who are going to suffer the most from this pandemic is something that requires looking at and it is an opportunity to look at what commitments can be made to strengthening some of those systems and structures after this and bringing more of an equity lens. There's also, I think, the reality that a lot of the actual response work in this time with movement limitations really does rely on local leadership at national levels, at far more local community levels. And there's been a lot of conversation about localization and local leadership. And now sort of by necessity, that's at the forefront. And I think that's an opportunity to look at how does this sort of recognition of the critical role of local leaders in responding to some of these issues and into building more just and peaceful societies really remain front and center after the immediate crisis has passed. And when I say immediate, I think we all know we're nowhere close to getting out of this immediate phase because of the rolling waves of infection that are expected. But I do think that a strategic view can can start of start looking to the future as well about sort of the economics, not just of recovery, but the economics of conflict, the ways in which changes to global supply chain also changes some of the economic interests that drive violence and conflict and that are at play and what kind of opportunities may be presented by some disruption in those networks. So now when you when you mentioned the role of the local It reminds me that in addition to concerns about foreigners as the source of disease and problems, often in local areas, there are divisions most prominently between Christians and Muslims. And so there's kind of a religious scapegoating as well. I know that there was one report in Enugu where Christians and Muslims were cooperating to respond. I'm wondering if you all are seeing either interfaith dialogue or other social cohesion measures in local areas that are showing positive promise 
in response. Like these are areas where there's less violence, where there's more cooperation, so that as we start thinking long term, these strategies, these social cohesion strategies, interfaith dialogue strategies, actually are showing or demonstrating their value in moments like this. Do you have any examples of that? Maybe I can give an example, a concrete example. But most of the time, the religious are walking behind the door, not in front. I want to use the case in Syria. I'm still in connection with a religious leader in Central African Republic. And I remember when I was in contact with the cardinal, he told me that they, as religious leaders, were just coming from the president, where they were discussing about how to tackle the pandemic in Central African Republic. I think they went there as religious leaders and the network of Catholic, Protestant and Muslims who are working is a network that was sustained during the fighting, the fighting where we tried to work with them to have a network of Christians to fight the conflict. So that network is still doing things. Even the case of Togo where I was talking, the network we have there is a network, inter-religious network, including religious leaders and even young people. And they are now thinking how together we can promote the same message for social cohesion to keep the social cohesion going on even though people are staying at home. So this is a concrete example that really the inter-religious network, I think, could really provide a venue to send the same message to all people at the same moment and ensure that this helps not just to fight the virus, but also to go beyond the, the differences and keep people connected. Maybe I can give the example of what is happening in DRC uh, now. Myself and a number of organizations working with civil society, we've started three weeks ago establishing a kind of a platform and we approached the bishop conference to take the lead. So the news reached the president, and the president went behind and asked the religious leader to come and to be in charge of his own foundation against corona. We supported that because this is a platform where the president is a cardinal, so we'll say, uh, Ambongo. the vice president is uh, the, a pastor from the Protestant, and the secretary is the imam, the Islam imam. So this and the other churches are there. And they've uh, been joined by a number of other civil society organizations, women organizations, and uh, even experts. So there is a, a very good collaboration now between our own network of civil societies and the structures, activist structures, and the church to address different issues. One of the issues for us it is the fact that we, we needed to have a structure to mobilize funds from in, in, inside the country. To address the issue, we needed structure that has a kind of confidence of the people. And I think there you have religious leaders. And the other side, we needed people who are very committed on the ground, who can move very fast in different places, because corona being a social sickness that transmits person to person, you need a lot of information on the ground. And people have to go and check and meet people and explain them. So we, we have these two dynamics. So the, I think the interreligious group can be a strength, especially when the government want to have a kind of a backup to have a kind of legitimacy like, like in Congo. But there is a danger too, 
if at the end of the day they will be uh, they can be manipulated or the government can use that to its own benefit against opposition and others that's why we decided as a group of a network of civil society to be outside of that so myself i do the link between that group outside mostly activist groups and the senco the bishop conference and we we discuss a lot and discuss a lot myself with the secretary general to have a kind of possibility of sharing resources and this i think it can it is one of the the good example now they are asking the churches to do it, to play a role when the churches are closed people they don't meet in the church anymore and people they don't uh, the communities it is not like i've seen here in uh, washington where we have mass via stream and people are following in their houses people we are using just radios or uh, trying to to talk uh, person to person but but from far so it is becoming very difficult even for the religious communities themselves to mobilize their own faithful for me i am advocating now to a question a, a kind of country mobilization around one enemy that is pandemic and to go beyond religious denominations or political denominations we've called in one of our message I'll finish there by in this this topic we've called uh, the civil society organization we've called a kind of ceasefire among political parties because what we've seen that the political party are using the the corona to to show how the government is very bad how the it is not is not efficient how the government cannot resolve the problem and how things have to change but this is not the time to change because if, if everything collapses now no one will take responsibility so there i think the religious community can play a role to build a strong social cohesion and to sustain a kind of stability at least at the center of the power that is the capital now you got any thoughts I don't think I have much to add. I was also, I think Jean Baptiste's example from Central African Republic was the first one that was coming to mind in addition to the notion that Father Manani was sharing which is that radio networks can become a really important mechanism for sharing the kind of common information across faith groups, across identity groups that Jean Baptiste was mentioning, but also for encouraging mutual understanding, mutual aid. So also in Central African Republic, the Catholic Church is looking at using its radio stations and sort of developing new programming to strengthen social cohesion, interfaith cooperation, reduce suspicion of one group to another, but also kind of encourage people to find ways that they can show support to one another even while maintaining the right physical distance. So I have two final questions that I want to invite each of you to weigh in on. The first is the question of changing priorities. How if at all do you imagine that something like a global pandemic that has global significance but very very local impacts, how do you imagine that changes the peace building priorities in the short medium and long term in sub-saharan africa particularly i think given what we are expecting about the economic impacts of the pandemic and the response to it particularly in sub-saharan africa my sense is that there's going to need to be a lot of attention to strengthening natural resource management and other forms of collaborative collective economic development so finding ways that communities can restore their food security rebuild 
very, very local economic activity that's going to be necessary for survival, but do so in ways that strengthens the common good, that includes everyone. And so that's where I think different methods and mechanisms for collaboration around sort of reconciling competing interests, some of those types of resources, and then finding ways to develop collectively will be really important. To add to what Nell just said, talking about peace priorities, you know, with what is going on, I saw in some places that violent conflicts has been put on hold. I think this is something that can be seen as good things coming out of this. For instance, in Cameroon, you know, there is a fighting going on in the Anglophone zone in Cameroon. After the call from the Pope, the call from United Nations, even the call from the local bishop, there was a halt in fighting in that place. I think this also brings us to think through. In front of a danger, we see how interconnected we are, and we need to be together to fight, to fight what is going on. I think this is a lesson we can learn from it. That's what I can share. That means this in terms of their halt, even though they also hold in peace processes, because people cannot meet together. But Talking about peace processes, one of the things I was thinking, maybe now we should start peace processes virtually. This can be a lesson from this. By bringing people to meet each other, maybe this do not give us a chance to start by thinking from a distance what they think about the others. And this can bring us to also change the way we are approaching even the negotiation processes to understand that the negotiation do not need to start with uh, in-person meetings, but even though we end with in-person meetings to sign the accord, but at the beginning, at least, the virtual gives us a possibility to work on peace. Yeah, let, let me build on uh, what uh, Jean-Baptiste have said, just to give the contrary of the situations. In the Congo, conflict have started. In fact, some groups have taken advantage of this pandemic to be more present on the ground. So. You have the army of Rwanda that have crossed, that is targeting many people in the eastern of Congo. We have the Burundians who are crossing. We have many fighting in the plateau. You know, the region has been there itself. And uh, you, have, you have the ADF that uh, have, are, are taking a responsibility because people are, many soldiers are, are, are fearing to move because of the corona. So the road is open. So this can be also the consequence of, of this. But for long term, I think our big enemy in the, in the coming days, it's poverty. All the reports that came out till now have shown that uh, we'll go through a very big hunger situation on the continent. And this, it will, will be if we don't address it very quickly or if there is no way of mitigating it, it will be the, the, the starting point of a new type of conflict around the resources. People are not, doing, not talking about mining or other things. It will be around what people have to, to eat. And this has been the situation. I don't know if you've seen the images in Nyanga. Nyanga, it is one region, Cape Town, where finally population decided to go out and fight the police because they decided to survive instead of being in the, in the house. So this is one of the cases, in my view, we'll have. The second point, in my view, it will be the stability. In my view, we hope that uh, maybe the pandemic will not kill as many people as we are seeing in the West. If it happened like that, and if our government do not manage to handle the situation, 
then this it will swap totally most of the government on the continent because people after passing through this kind of crisis they will uh, ask some people to respond and then i think it will shake a lot weak uh, regime that are or on the ground lastly i think this it will create a very problem of stability so for all people working in peace buildings i think it is good truly to start reflecting on how do we address the situation from different perspectives and one of the things at least i'm working on with uh, the center where i work and the organization that we coordinate and we help to organize it should be for us an occasion to ask the government at least of the congo to improve its medical system it is not normal that there are many countries in africa in fact they didn't have ventilators enough they don't have ppe they uh, they were not prepared at all and now uh, china is coming helping a bit but most of the people uh, uh, they cannot so if there is a big spread of the virus the way it is in africa it is in europe it will be a disaster on the continent and it will be good to consider that at the starting point a big destabilization on the continent so there's the possibility of destabilization there's clear indications of people going deeper into poverty there are the lack of healthcare systems and other infrastructures there's the possibilities of increased violence and cross and and insurgencies and so many increasing negative possibilities which is why i'm so glad that this particular podcast was organized by the catholic peace building network because one of the things that people absolutely need is hope and so as our last question on the way out i would love for each of you to offer in a word of hope that peace builders and those who are inclined for peace could take away from our conversation this morning i started at the beginning let me also start by saying that i think this coronavirus bring us to be more conscious of the interconnectedness of human being we are all the same being in power don't prevent you to get sick being in the community don't prevent you to get sick and i hope that this connectedness this conscious of our connectedness our interconnectedness we bring us to build a more cohesive world after the virus where everybody know that i need the others we are all together in this world we need to prevent to prevent disaster as this one to the world all together that is my hope that at the end of this we will come up with a more humility and more sense of that we human being need to get connected to fight the diseases and to fight all the things that create that obstacle for the humanity this is my hope if i could build on that i would also add and hope is in the way in which the entire world the way we do things around the world has changed so quickly to me gives us a chance is that the way things are isn't the way things need to be it's not the way they need to stay and if we can sort of stop the world on a dime and so many of its systems then we have a chance to sort of reconfigure the world and one in which human dignity 
is more central, one in which all that we're doing is more oriented to the common good and to solidarity. And so it wouldn't be an easy path, but I think there is some hope that we can create a different kind of future and go back into a different long-term future than the crazy and inequitable and violent world that we had before this pandemic. Yes, my hope it is, I think it is uh, what I'm witnessing this time. The way I've said, I'm working with um, many organizations in the DRC and trying to organize the response from the community perspectives. And what I can find, and I think this is the hope we have, that there is a need, there is a call for cohesion. I never see, have this kind of response from almost everybody trying to contribute to the fund to find food for the weak people, to have the brigade in the popular places, to go and visit weak people. And the young people, they are um, putting their uh, money to build masks for uh, other people. So for me, there is this sensation of people feeling that they they are in the same boat and they are in the same trouble, but they will win only being together. It is truly a sign of hope. And I can see it truly from the young people working in different regions in uh, Congo and Angola. And for me, this is, gives hope and it, can, it is a place, it is an occasion where people, on which people can build in the, in the future, showing the power of being together than being divided. And so when we see young and old alike that are responding to the call to action on behalf of the most vulnerable in their local areas and are taking time to respond cohesively towards a common good. When we recognize that the world has, for a variety of reasons, stopped on a dime, all systems have stopped, and we actually, in the midst of this, we're standing on a platform where there's a possibility for a new interconnected world where we recognize the depth of the of our Ubuntu, the connect our connectedness. We recognize that we are indeed just one people. There is a new vision of what is possible that is articulated and grounded in experiences of human dignity and of human worth and of solidarity and of the possibility that this world can not only emerge, but emerge differently and evolve towards the likelihood that more and more people will experience what they need to survive, to thrive, and to be able to contribute their gifts to the common good. This is a wonderful vision that you all have cast, and I appreciate the insights about what and how peace building both will be impacted, but how peace building is responding to this global pandemic. Jean-Baptiste Tala, Nell Bolton, Rigobert Manani, I thank all of you for your contributions to the conversation today. Very much. Thank Thank you. you very much. been listening to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Today's episode was produced in partnership with the Catholic Peacebuilding Network. 
You can find all episodes of The Crotcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.